Now is the time we bring you the virtual stage of our Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, go to bbrconsulting.us and click on Conference. One more time, visit bbrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Dr. Daryl Shorter is the Medical Director of Addiction Services at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is one of the leading psychiatric hospitals in the world. He is also Associate Professor of the Menninger Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Baylor College of Medicine. We are so excited to welcome Dr. Daryl Shorter to HealthGig. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited to have you here today. Yes, we're so excited. And being a Houstonian myself, I'm very proud of the Menninger Clinic. And it's an honor to meet you because I know a lot about the good work that goes on there. But we wanted to begin by just hearing a little bit about you, where you're from, a little bit about your family, and then how you got interested in addiction psychiatry. I'm originally from Chicago, Illinois, but I'm a Texan by choice, not by birth. Although Chicago will always have an extremely important and special place in my heart. I first came to Houston for a school. I went to college at Rice University and then stayed for medical school at Baylor College of Medicine. So I spent eight years here in Houston becoming acclimated to the weather and the heat. And the humidity. <laughs> uh, and the humidity. After graduating from medical school, I did residency at The Ohio State University. I started off in surgery, which was an interesting fit and perhaps a, a conversation for another time. And then I did a year of general surgery and six months of urology before I switched into psychiatry during my second year of training. I think like many people who are first interested in psychiatry, I thought I would become a child and adolescent psychiatrist. There's such an important emphasis on the development, the family, and how to perhaps take on a more preventive role in the mental health care of individuals. And so child psychiatry was where I thought I would land. And then I rotated on an inpatient child psychiatry unit and realized that that work didn't necessarily speak to me in the way that I thought it might, you know, my hat's off to all child psychiatrists. It is an extremely rewarding and challenging type of work because of the family dynamics and the interactions that take place. You're often providing care not only to kid or kiddo, you're also providing care to family caregivers. And so for me, that work felt really quite daunting. And I think I experienced a little bit of what I would call now like my own little sort of mini crisis in psychiatry thinking like, okay, well, what am I going to do with my career in mental health treatment. And a couple of things happened during residency. I started rotating in our outpatient clinic and 
I was working with folks who had addictive disorders, substance use disorders of all kinds. And I remember a couple of patients in particular. One was a, a guy who had alcohol use disorder and depression and anxiety. This was someone who had been able to find sobriety and recovery through a 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous or AA. And all of a sudden, in the context of his sobriety and his recovery, just things in his life got so much better. All of a sudden, his antidepressant was working and he was less depressed and he was less anxious and his relationship with his wife was healed and he was a better dad and he was a better worker. And I thought, oh, I experience a lot of hope in working with folks who have addictions. So that was one very memorable patient. And I had another memorable patient who was an employee of the university and they had developed a pretty significant dependence on benzodiazepine and anti-anxiety medication called Xanax. Perhaps the listeners have heard of Xanax. It's also sometimes referred to by its generic name, Alprazolam. While these medications don't always lend themselves to dependence, for some people, particularly if they are vulnerable because they have maybe anxiety disorder or family history of a substance use disorder, they can develop a dependence. And this individual certainly, certainly did. I was working with the, this person and I remember going to a supervisor and saying, hey, would like to taper them off of the Xanax. I'd like to take them off. And my supervisor said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to see them every week. You're going to see them about 15 to 20 minutes every week. And you will decrease the dose of the medication gradually over time. And I said, okay, I got it. And he said, and you're going to ask the patient for permission to come down on the dose every week when you see them which was completely a novel idea. If you go to an inpatient service or you go to a residential treatment program, they might create a taper schedule for you. And they say, we're going to come down by this amount this day on this week and this, and they'll live it and by X amount of time, we will have you totally off this medicine. This supervisor said, that's not the approach you're going to take with this individual. You're going to establish rapport. You're going to establish a therapeutic alliance. You're going to get their buy-in. You want them to trust you and to trust that you have their best interest at heart. You're also going to offer an antidepressant, which is the sort of appropriate treatment for the underlying anxiety disorder. It's the first line treatment. And you're just going to work with them. And so over the course of the next almost year, I saw the patient every week. I remember one week they came in and they said, I think I'm going to have to put my cat down. And I said, well, then this isn't the week for us to make any changes to your benzodiazepine. And of course, I was doing the things that were recommended at the time, like we would get urine drug screens to support the recovery. I was only giving a week's worth of medication at a time. So instead of giving like a 30-day supply with multiple refills, we would refill the medication only so that the supply was limited, so that the temptation was a little less. And by golly, by the end of the year, that patient was off that Xanax. And I thought, oh my goodness, I can do this. I can do addictions work. So after completing residency at Ohio State, I went to New York University and did an addiction psychiatry fellowship there. I was in New York for a couple of years, and that really greatly expanded my thinking and understanding the depth 
of my learning really came in addiction at NYU. And then after that, I came back to Baylor and I've been on faculty ever since. I've worked in the VA system. I did that for about 12 years and now I've been at Menninger for two and a half years and doing a variety of things within the addictions field, education and overseeing training program and research and of course, clinical work. Wow. So this individual approach that you described with that patient, that your supervisor, that's the approach that you take now? We now understand, I think, even better than we did back when I was in training, that there is really no one-size-fits-all approach to the care of really any patient, certainly for folks that are struggling with mental health conditions, and absolutely for folks that are dealing with addictive disorders or other types of behavioral addictions or substance use disorders. For some people, recovery is accessible through 12-step only. Like There are plenty of people who go to AA, NA, CA, MA, CMA, whatever A you can think of, and they get so much out of meetings or the connection with a sponsor and a community. They get a lot out of fellowship. They enjoy working the steps. And it really does something for them that perhaps traditional psychiatry and psychology is not unable to do. And if that works for you, fantastic. I support it. And I want for people to do that if that's the thing that works best for them. There were a number of people for whom that approach did not work. And we needed to be able to offer things for them as well. And when I say things, I mean a combination of things. I mean, for some folks, it's psychotherapy. For some folks, it's group psychotherapy. Some people need to have their medications tapered quickly. Some people need that to take place more gradually. Some people benefit from having medications as a counterstone component of the overall addictions treatment. Some people need a combination of those things. Mindfulness, yoga, meditation, spiritual practice, going back to church for some people, maybe something maybe more faith-based. There are other types of mutual help groups that are not just 12-step oriented that can be helpful for people. Really, it's about finding the thing or things that work best for the person that I'm working with and really trying to support them in doing those things. As a child in like high school and, you know, do you have doctors in your family or how did you no, decide I was, this? No, I was the first one. I was oh, the first wow. one. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you were bright probably. <laughs> so you didn't ask. So my, my dad is a Baptist minister, like his oh, father okay. before him. Oh, my mom okay. taught first grade in the Chicago public school system oh, wow. like my entire childhood. So, you know, education was always stressed huge. in the home. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge. You're familiar with faith and what with your Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Such, how does that play a role in you practicing? Yeah. So it's interesting. So I can be completely understanding of how it is that someone arrives at the space of religious conversion is the only way by which I feel like I can achieve recovery. Because there are lots of folks out there. I would say probably the majority of people believe that they are responsible, personally responsible for finding recovery from addiction or sobriety or abstinence, however they think about that. And a part of that belief in self-reliance can also lean on a reliance upon God, higher power, a la spiritual connection. 
I remember encountering very early in my career, people would come in and they would say, listen, I just need to get right with God and then I'll be good. Like, I don't even really need to be here. Or the first time I had a conversation with someone and their preferred method of treatment was going to church and having hands laid upon them. That was what they wanted to do as their treatment. And early on, I was like, uh, I can't get it. And, but now my approach is, okay, well, I think you should go to church on Sunday. Let's schedule the laying of the hands on. And I'd like you to come back and see me next week because we're going to start psychotherapy for you. And then I'm also going to offer you this medication. And you can start it after you have your hands laid on you or before. I'll give you the choice. I mean, like, you know, you just sort yeah, of begin to kind of meet people where they all. are. What is most important to the individual? And I will admit, this is sometimes very difficult to do because, of course, I still do have my own very strong medical leanings when right, it comes to right. addiction treatment. But it doesn't always follow that just because I think that something is in someone's best interest that they think it will be in their best interest. We try to support people in doing the things and following through with the things that they are most interested in doing, as long as they're not posing a risk of harm. Yes. Um, and even in a case like that, if they do, we talk about how to reduce those harms. What is it that constitutes an addiction? My thinking on this has obviously had to change and evolve as well over the last several years. I think from the most academic basic standpoint, we recognize addiction as having a few different components. One is the more physiological piece of it that I kind of alluded to when I gave the example of the person that I worked with who was dependent upon the Xanax. People develop tolerance to a particular substance, meaning that if they try to take the same amount of that substance, they have less of an effect than they did when they first started, or they require more and more and more of a substance in order to achieve the same or the desired effect. People can also experience withdrawal which is a characteristic set of physical and psychological symptoms that people experience when they abruptly stop using a substance. Now, the thing that we know about withdrawal and it, how it gets kind of tricky is that people can experience sort of many micro level of withdrawal between uses as the tolerance goes up. And so oftentimes people don't even necessarily know what you're experiencing right now is withdrawal because instead of taking the drug every 24 hours, your tolerance has gone up. And so now you probably need to take it every 12 hours. But you're trying to take it every 24 hours, so you're really actually in a little bit of withdrawal between your uses. The other physi physiological symptom that people can experience is craving. Craving can be like a psychological experience or a physiological experience where people experience it in their bodies. So I will sometimes ask folks, like, where do you feel the desire to use? Oh, I feel it in my gut. I feel it in my chest. I feel hot or tingly. So talking to people about craving very intense desire to use is, is another symptom or another aspect of addiction. The other two aspects are broadly, one, a loss of control over the use. By that, I mean someone sits down and they say, I'm only going to have one and instead they have six. Or they say, oh, I'm only going to take one puff or one hit and they take 12. Or I'm only going to use for X amount of time. I'm going to use for about 20 to 30 minutes. And then two hours later, they're still using. So there's a loss of control over the use. And then the final piece that we see is people experience continued use despite negative consequences. So everything in their life, in their relationships, in their job, in their health, in the way that they feel from a mental health standpoint, might be telling them the substance is not doing you any good. And yet... They continue to engage in the use of the substance. 
So if you have kind of that collection or even maybe one of those parts of the collection, we might start to question or think about, one, is, is there the presence of a substance use disorder? And two, like what kinds of changes can be made, not should, but can be made yeah. that might change the relationship, the nature of the relationship to the substance or substances. Today, when someone comes in and you're doing medication, do you test them now for if the medication will work or don't work? Is that part of your conversation too, rather than trying them? I don't know if that's something you guys do. That is a part of what we do now, actually. There are some tests that are available and this is an interesting part of the science of addiction medicine and really of mental health more broadly. There are some genetic tests that might help us to predict, maybe too strong of a word, but they may give us information about whether or not someone is more or less likely to respond to a medication or to a treatment. And some of those genetic tests do relate to specific substance use disorders and medications. So for example, there's one genetic test that can help us to predict if a medication called topiramate, also known as Topamax, if it's more or less likely to be helpful for someone with alcohol use disorder. So we have begun to get to this point within addiction medicine and addiction science where we are trying to do a better job of predicting response and whether or not that response will be favorable. Or if you're just sort of barking up the wrong tree with a medication and you need to think about how to either enhance the quality of that treatment or to think about using a different medication instead. Yeah, because precision medicine is something Dora and I talk a lot about, and we were just curious as how you use it in your practice. Yeah, it yeah. is available to us. And I also think that trying to stay up on that research and on that literature is really a critical part of my yes. own work and one of the things that I feel pretty passionately about and recognizing that we also need more information. We need more research on this. We need more data on this. We need to ensure that all types of people are included in that type of research. Sometimes it can be very difficult to, or a little bit more challenging to enroll women with substance use disorders in clinical trials. There's so much stigma and judgment around substance use disorders in general, and then women in particular experience quite a bit more. And that actually serves as a barrier for them coming into care and seeking treatment. And that also extends to their involvement in research as well. You know, we've heard you talk about the confusion people have toward people with addiction, and we might judge them and say, well, they're just not motivated enough. They're just yeah. not doing what they need to do. And you talk about that. When you said that phrase, I had to take a deep sigh because that's one of my least favorite, most triggering statements in a treatment setting, this idea that he's just not motivated or they're not motivated. It's just so dismissive and so judgmental and, and it does really nothing to bring us closer to developing greater alliance and rapport with the patient or client. Yeah. It's, it's like it's distancing in so many ways. It's also not necessarily language that we use when it comes to other types of medical condition. So like if somebody has cancer, okay? They're not motivated. Yeah. And they're coming in, they're getting their chemotherapy, but they have not cut out French fries. We would never say they're not motivated to get treatment for cancer because they're still eating fries because we think that they should have like a totally green, healthy diet right. all the time. I mean, <laughs> we just don't use that sort of thinking about other conditions, you know? I will sort of jokingly say to people, I'm on a, uh, on a high blood pressure medicine and probably mostly from my job, <laughs> Yeah, but also from the <laughs> fact that I love salty snacks. <laughs> I love salty snacks. And so 
imagine me going to my doctor and saying like, yeah, I really, I'm trying with the chips, but it's not happening for me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to let the barbecue potato chips go, which is a real thing. And my doctor said, oh, well, you're just not motivated to treat your blood pressure. Oh, horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Or people, you know, that might be living with diabetes and like you would say, oh, well, they're not motivated to treat their diabetes because they still have dessert. I mean, we just don't do that. But we we attach that language of motivation to people with substance use disorders without understanding or appreciating that change is a process, that change is really hard and it can be gradual and that it's not necessarily linear. So people might come to us in a stage of change. We talk about it, the people being pre-contemplative, but pre-contemplation is still a change, a stage mm -hmm. of the change process. Yeah. People might be experiencing all kinds of really complex emotions around their relationship to a particular thing. And listeners may appreciate this as well. Maybe you don't necessarily have an addictive disorder where it's related to substance like alcohol or other types of drugs. Yeah. But we can maybe all appreciate the complexity of our relationship with our smartphones. Right. Good one. So when I'm talking to audiences, I will ask people by a show of hands to raise your hand if you, in the last week, sent a text while driving. Now, you have engaged in an extraordinarily dangerous behavior that is dangerous for you as well as for the other people around you. And you know better. You know that it is a dangerous behavior. But you got a notification or you got the ding and you picked up your phone to see what was going on. And then not only did you look at it to see what was going on, you actually sent a text, you responded. Or some people say, well, I don't text while I drive. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Maybe what you did is you looked at a map on your phone. Maybe yeah. what you did was you advanced a podcast that you were listening yes, to by picking right, up your phone. Or, right. you, or you switched to a different album on your music platform. People have challenging relationships to technology in 2023 that I think need to be acknowledged, yet they engage in this behavior despite the knowledge of the negative consequences of it. I think we all have at least by this point heard the message, you're supposed to put your phone down probably an hour before you'd like to go to bed. How many listeners sleep with their phone on their nightstand and are looking at their phone right before they go to sleep, which we know can disrupt sleep architecture? We don't necessarily have it in the DSM-5 just yet about fault addiction, but we're not so different from people that are struggling with substance use disorders if yeah. we really look at our lives. So at Menegers, when you talk about addiction, do you only talk about what's in the, whatever that is, book you just mentioned? Oh, yeah. The yeah. MS, whatever. Or are you including other addictions that aren't necessary? We, yeah, we have to include them all. And, yeah. and many folks come to us with behavioral addictions present as well. Now, the DSM is the stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Yes. Uh, it is the way that mental health clinicians go about diagnosing and classifying psychiatric and psychological conditions. How do you feel about the importance of labeling and classifying? I think it is helpful for some people, and I think it is not helpful for others. And part of my work in trying to get to know people is to hopefully figure out when that is helpful and when it isn't. So the only behavioral addiction that is in the DSM is gambling addiction, right? gambling disorder. The other types of behavioral addictions, we're thinking compulsive sexual behavior or pornography or internet 
those are not actually not included in the DSM. They are not official diagnoses. Now, they may have codes from the World Health Organization, but in our DSM in the U.S., it is not part of the way that we think about behavioral addiction at this point. We have so much more to talk to Dr. Daryl Shorter about. So join us next week for part two of this episode of Health Gig. Thank you for listening and be well. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. Precision medicine is a genetics-based approach to personalized care informed by biometrics, genomics, and lifestyle factors. Dr. Dawson, founder, CEO of Wild Health, can bring you incredible recommendations for diet, exercise, sleep, mental health, disease risk reduction, and more based on your personal health story. All of you are invited to get to know Matt Dawson better beside the ocean and over some incredible meals at Gasparilla in November. Call for the Foundations of Wellness Experience reservations at 877-764-1420 or the-gasparilla-in.com.